Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the 8th Position Podcast. This is episode 5 of season 2. As always, I'm Lawson Gardner. I'm here with my co-host, Darian Baldwin. We're already on episode 5? We already are on episode 5. Well, that went by pretty fast. Okay. (laughs) That's how this stuff usually goes. Like, last season, we started it, and then we blinked, and it was over. And we were like, oh, that was quick. I remember starting it still, or like, just getting around to starting it. It didn't go by fast. <laughs> Sorry, our nostalgia is taking over the podcast here. <laughs> so, anyways, <laughs> uh, this is this is a really really good interview. I just want to put that out there now. It's really good. Uh, our guest was very very kind, very nice. Had great funny stories and a really great sense of humor in general. So, if you like humor and comedy, stick around. <laughs> she's just a really genuine person and we had really great conversations about all sorts of different topics so seriously stay tuned like we really just talk over a lot of different things and cover a lot of different subjects and she's a great human being so we we really enjoyed this episode yes we did uh quick disclaimer before we get started uh, keep in mind that we are working within the limits of our uh, situation. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're recording this in a dorm room. Uh, we we don't have a recording studio. We don't have professional equipment. So, kind of during the interview, you might be hearing furniture move around in the room above <laughs> us. People like to do that. I don't know why they consistently move their furniture after ten PM. after ten p.m. <laughs> every night. I guess they can't get satisfied with where it is, but um, people talking, people yelling, whatever, dumb stuff. Sorry about that. That's the situation we're working with right now. Wish there's something we could do about it, but there is not. So anyway, let's get back to the interview. We talked about her career with music, uh, how she got started with it specifically, and when and why she chose to become a performer over an educator. Uh, and that, that, was, that was a really great story going through that with her time at uh, Eastman. We'll get into that later. Um, we talked about some of her experiences taking auditions and some subsequent problems she had with burnout and self-doubt. Um, I mean, I feel like that's always not really fun to hear about, but inspiring to see that even though some of the best musicians go through some of those ruts, they're able to get out of it and continue their career successfully. We heard a lot about that with Wesley Shores early on in, in season one. Uh, so we kind of continued along that strain, getting a different person's perspective on all that. And then we talked about this next thing a little bit with Natalie Cressman um, as well. Uh, but she is more kind of a jazz and commercial musician. But uh, our guest today is more a classical musician. But we wanted to get her perspective on female representation in the trombone world. Because as we mentioned in our interview with Miss Cressman, it is our goal in this podcast one of our goals in this podcast to really kind of push equality and equity in in representation in our community because that's really important to us so we got her perspective as a classical musician on those issues um good stuff yeah who is she darian oh well she has been a prominent teacher freelance performer in texas and upstate new york for a pretty long time now. Recently, she has been the principal trombonist of Temple Symphony and the adjunct professor at Texas A&M. And she just made the move to Kentucky to become visiting professor of trombone at Murray State Universities. And of course, we welcome Dr. Megan Booten.
out our interview with Dr. Megan Booten tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you both? We're great. We're excited to be here. Uh, So let's talk about your early life a little bit. I'm interested to know how you got into trombone, um, why you chose it initially, and then also why you chose to pursue it professionally. Sure. So um, I was lucky that when I was in fifth grade, my uh, music teacher in elementary school uh, was a trombone player. And she encouraged me to, to play trombone. Um, I had a, a best friend at the time. She also wanted to play trombone. And um, so all those things were sort of lined up already. But I think what really made me want to play was that my older brother played trombone mm-hmm. and the boys up the street played trombone. <laughs> and so I figured, well, if they can do it, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it better than all of them. There you go. So, <laughs> and here I am. Um, so I think that's kind of what got me started um, as far as, as far as wanting to play trombone from the beginning. Um, as far as, you know, pursuing it professionally, um, I honestly wasn't 100% sure that I wanted to do music um, in high school from the beginning. Um, I came from a pretty small um, town and, um, you know, I had, I had opportunities to play like with a youth wind ensemble and a youth orchestra. Um, and I, so I knew that I really liked, um, playing at a higher level. Um, my high school band was like, okay. (laughs) Um, but I found it, you know, I found like um, what I really liked was I took, I was taking lessons in high school. Um, and I really liked playing with those, um, that youth wind ensemble and the orchestra. And that, that was really fun for me. Um, I had other things I was interested in and things I was, I was pretty decent at. And, um, but as far as, as music went, I thought this is, I like doing this and, and it, out of, out of all the things that I could potentially see doing, I think, you know, I could see myself being a band director. Um, I didn't really know how else to be a musician, uh, really honestly because that was all I saw I was like you can be a band director okay I could do that band is pretty fun you know um it doesn't feel like work so that's Mm -hmm. a bonus um it doesn't feel tedious it never feels hard um I like it I'm pretty good at it and so that's you know I, I I think like a lot of students I didn't have a huge um long term goal or or passion, really strong passion in mind. It was just something I really enjoyed, something I was pretty good at. And I was like, yeah, I think I could make this work. I could do this. Um, and, and then from there, you know, once I got into college, then I realized, oh my gosh, my day is all music every day. This is amazing. I love this. This is fantastic. Yeah. Like I don't have to go to math anymore. I don't have to go to science anymore. (laughs) I can just like play trombone all day and all my classes are about music. Um, and that's, I think when it, it was like, yeah, this is, this is what I have to do. You know, um, as soon as I started, I, I remember being on campus like the first week or two of, um, you know, my freshman year and just like thinking, Yep, this is awesome. I love this. <laughs> Where did you go? <laughs> Never looked back since. So I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York. Okay. Yeah, it's in Ithaca, New York. Yeah, it's a um, smallish size um, liberal arts school, um, but it has a pretty decent sized school of music. And um, and so that's 
yeah, that's where I ended up. It, it, when I was uh, in high school, I was, you know, looking at schools and um, to go to college. And, you know, like I said, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with music. So I was looking at schools that ranged from like Oberlin, that was a conservatory style school to, you know, something um, like Colgate or Skidmore or Carnegie Mellon schools that were more mm -hmm. um, liberal arts where you might have like a department in music, but not necessarily even a school of music or, um, you know, where the level of music was a little bit less compared to a conservatory style. So um, I ended up, um, I ended up at, at Ithaca and, and super happy I was there. It was just the right balance for me at the time based on where I had come from and my skill level and um, the, the professor there was somebody who uh, was really, really welcoming and, um, you know, I had a great experience there. It was, it was just kind of like the right size and the right fit for me, thankfully. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> So something I think is interesting is you mentioned this earlier, but you went into music education for your undergrad. Mm -hmm. and so now I mean, I'm, I'm getting that that kind of seems like you thought that was your only option to go into what you enjoyed. But was it when you were at school and you were getting into the more performance side that you decided to switch to performance for your master's? Yeah, so... I, uh, I started as music ed. Uh, yeah, just because I thought, well, that's, that's what you can do. And I honestly didn't think I was good enough to be a performer and didn't really know anybody that were professional performers. I just, my, my world just view wasn't that big. Um, and Facebook and social media weren't a thing then. <laughs> so like for real Facebook, like started, I think I, I joined Facebook when I was in college. Um, and it wasn't what it was now. So there wasn't, I, I, I just didn't know. Um, I, there was just a lot I, I didn't know about music. Um, I didn't know what the International Trombone Association was. I didn't know that there was this thing called the International Trombone Festival. I just I didn't know hardly any performers. Um, you know, I had a um, a couple of CDs, um, but uh, I could you know again like streaming wasn't a thing either. <laughs> um, so so it's a, it's just it was different you know as far as learning how to find out about music and performers and what you can do as a musician. So when I went in I thought yeah I could be a high school band director. But pretty early probably around my sophomore year I I realized that teaching music in the schools involved a lot of elements that I felt like were more like work and I was really liking performing more than like writing lesson plans for, you know, oh. um, <laughs> sixth grade, sixth grade, you know, um, general music or, or even like even score study, you know, I was like, I, this is good. I'm, I like it. It's interesting, but you know, um, it feels like more work and practicing and playing in ensembles just was, that was easy. That was fun. That was all I wanted to do is practice. Um, and I started to get better, um, go figure <laughs> that, you know, I, I, I started to, to really get better and improve. So, so here's, here's, um, here's something when I started my freshman year, I, we had to audition as far as like placements, um, for band. And I was, I think either second to last or last out of the entire trombone studio. Like, and I didn't even know that I wasn't good <laughs> like it just oh, no. didn't I just like oh I'm not good I'm bad oh no <laughs> so um 
I really practiced hard. Like I practiced my butt off. I practiced all the time and I loved practicing. So that wasn't a problem. But, um, I, again, also just, I hadn't come from a super strong high school program. Um, I really didn't know what it meant to play in tune. I, I don't remember talking about tuning that much. Like as long as you're playing the right note, you know, as long as your slide is close-ish, it's good enough. Um, so when I got to college, I was like, oh, God, I'm really bad. Um, and But I think by, you know, so I practiced work super hard. And I think by my sophomore year, by the time we came around to do auditions again, my sophomore year, I think I was, you know, in the top two or three. I was, I was, I went right from bottom of the bottom band to top of, like, wind ensemble or, or I, that year, I think it was wind ensemble. So, so it, it just for me, um, became something I realized, um, I, I just didn't know a lot of like how to finesse my playing when I first came in. And once my ears started opening up, um, you know, I, I was able to improve a lot. And that's, I think when I started to think like, oh, wow, this is, I can get pretty good at this. This is, this is great. You know, I, I want to do more of this. I want to get better. Um, so that's probably about when I started to think like, I don't really want to be a band director. Um, but it wasn't that I, I didn't like teaching. Um, it just felt that some of the things involved with being a, a, a band director, like all the, like buying instruments and doing, you know, programming concerts and, um, you know, like all the time that goes into you know, scheduling sectionals and um, all, all those things felt like, oh boy, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that's harder than practicing. Um, so yeah, I think that's when I, I, I decided, like, I, I think I want to go and get my master's. Um, but when I really finally decided that it was probably late in my junior year, early in my senior year of college that I really decided. Um, and by that time I wasn't really ready to apply for a master's program. I just didn't, I felt like I was a little bit behind the eight ball. Um, so I, I finished my senior year, um, did my student teaching, um, and I ended up, um, applying for and getting a, a teaching job at a K through six school. Um, so I taught kindergarten and first grade general music, and I taught fifth and sixth grade band. Um, and I did that for a year, but the entire year I, I knew, my plan was I'm going to take this year. I'm going to practice. I'm going to get even better. And then I'm going to apply because I really wanted to go to Eastman for my master's. So mm -hmm. Ithaca college is a couple um, hours South of Rochester where Eastman is. Um, and starting about my junior year, I was driving up to uh, Eastman to take lessons with the trombone professor there, Mark Kellogg. And, um, so I would go up every couple of months and say, Hey, can I have a lesson? And so seeing what was going on at Eastman and the level that was happening there, um, really made me like, that was like my, my goal to go there. Um, and so I, but I also knew I, I was going to be behind even still. So having that extra year to practice and, and work and get ready, I think was really beneficial for me. I just needed that extra time. Um, and then when I went to, to, then when I finally did go to my master's and, and started on performance, I, f I felt like I was more ready. Um, and I knew what I wanted a little bit better. So that, I think that also helped to give me some focus once I started my master's also. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. Interesting. And did you yeah. get your doctorates recently or 
Did that happen right after your graduate? So, okay. So this is another way that my life has not, you know, followed this, the, the sort of st- like standard project that that's people imagine, you know, um, like you go, you go undergrad and then you go get your master's and then maybe, you know, you take some auditions and you win a gig or maybe you go undergrad master's and, and doctorate and then boom, you know, you're, you're a fully fledged adult and competent in all things of music. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what happened, um, so I took the year off in between my math, between my undergrad and my master's. Totally felt that was a great year off. Um, it also kind of helped to to give me a little bit of momentum to be like I was really excited to be back in school. Um, and Eastman was um, challenging for me. It was a place that I went into, and you know, being a master's student, I was there with undergrads who were you know eighteen year olds um, who had been in arts programs who had been like at Interlochen um, or, you know, had been like trombone is what I'm going to do for my life. And they'd known that since they were in middle school, you know, maybe like, maybe like you guys. <laughs> um, and they were really dedicated and <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, and I remember, you know, there was like listening, listening to a sophomore do his recital and he played um, the bourgeois concerto. And I thought there, uh, Oh my gosh. Like he's so good. <laughs> And he's, and he's like 19 and, and now he plays like in one of the premier military, um, uh, bands uh, in DC. So I was around these students who were just really, really talented and really, really good. And, you know, I was, I was pushing myself to, you know, just work as hard as I could and, and practice as much as I could practice to the point where like my face was just tired all the time. Um, and just wanting, wanting to be good. And I'm, I'm a little bit of a workaholic. Um, so I was probably like, should have taken a day off here and there, but I just like kept beating up my face. Like I just, if I practice just a little harder, I'll get better. Um, you know, sometimes practicing hard versus smart, you know, is something that I, I, Mm -hmm. it took me a while to learn that. Um, so I was practicing really, really hard, but I was, I was not practicing as smart as I probably could have. Um, and I, anyway, so I started, um, I started taking orchestral auditions, um, and was epically bad at first. Um, oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember my first, the, like, so actually the, 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 my first, my first orchestral audition, I actually won the job when I oh, finished. Wow. Yeah. Which is like, wow. Awesome. <laughs> when I finished, um, when I finished my, my undergrad, I was the end of my senior year, my professor had retired from his, um, opera company job. Um, it was Tri-Cities Opera in Binghamton, New York. And he had decided to retire from the position and he said, Hey, you know, you should, you should audition for it. So I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. Audition. I've never done this before. Sounds great. Let me try it. So, um, I did it and I went and I played and that afternoon they called me and they said, um, we'd like to offer you the position. And I was like, Oh, oh, cool. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, it wasn't a full-time opera company, but it was, you know, a, a, a professional, professional opera company. And they, they would do, you know, four, usually four operas a season. Um, and, oh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how to count rests also in that gig. <laughs> um, and, uh, so, so that was actually my first audition, but then when I really started to audition seriously, um, I think there was like a, an opening for a national symphony in DC. And I was like, Oh, cool. I can take that. 
<laughs> and, and, um, you know, I, uh, I, I practiced and I just figured I'll just, let me just see what happens. And I remember driving down, there were two other master students. We, we all drove down together, um, down to DC, you know, and there were, I don't know, probably 80 or a hundred people that like, they didn't do a screening for it. So it was just like oh. tons of people there. Yeah. They, I don't think they did a screening for it. Cause I don't, they wouldn't have taken me <laughs> if they had oh. done a screening. Um, and I think I got on stage and I was like, so stupid, nervous, just like crazy nervous. I, I, I don't even know how I played. I, it's just, just like, almost like just, I walked off stage and my hands were numb. Like I couldn't feel my hands. I, I, and I, yeah, it was, it was, performance anxiety to the like so serious a level that I I was physically um like just like I didn't I I was I I couldn't like barely walk like my hand like yeah my hands I just remember my hands being numb and I was like I can't feel my hands I have no idea what's going on right now I have no idea how I just played and I think I probably got through like two excerpts before they said thank you (laughs) um because it was probably so awful Oh yeah, yeah. And um so that was my first audition and um and that really became like a struggle with performance anxiety. Like I realized, oh wow, I there's there's this whole performance anxiety thing that I need to figure out how to deal with. Um so that's was its own um journey learning to deal with that. Um and so it probably took me until about like my oh easily like 10th, 12th audition or so before I even could walk on stage and feel like the way I'm playing is just my normal, like not great, like not amazing, but like I'm not going out and making a fool of myself anymore. Um, I'm doing what I normally do in the practice room. Um, so that for me just felt like a big step. And then finally, you know, by the end of, of taking those auditions, I was like starting to get some final rounds, um, and some callbacks and, and I was runner up for, um, a job, um, uh, in Midland, Odessa in Texas. Little did I know I would end up in Texas, <laughs> um, not for an orchestral gig, but, um, I think that whole process of doing orchestral auditions and just working super, super hard, um, and feeling like I was kind of beating my head against a wall, um, really um just started to to frustrate me and and i you know was dealing with just not being happy also like it started to just feel like this this is this is really hard this is really tough um and lots of like i don't i don't think i can do this like I, i'm just i'm just never gonna be good enough to get a job like an orchestral job like i it's just not i'm just not good enough and i just can't get better like you know, these, these two years that I'm practicing (laughs) in my Mm -hmm. master's and I, and I haven't, and I haven't gotten it yet. You know, I I was just really, really impatient, um, and thought like, well, if I can't do it now, I'm never going to get it. And, um, and I think that plus probably a little bit of like the fact that Rochester is a really, really gray city. Um, like the weather there is really, really like kind of bad. (laughs) Most people, like, I don't think anybody will be offended. Sorry to anybody who lives in Rochester. Like it's a lovely city, but, um, the weather kind of is awful, um, for (laughs) me anyways. And, and it just, I just really needed a break. I got super burned out basically. Um, so I got super burned out and just said, I, I need a break. I need to go somewhere else. I need to do something different. Um, I'm, 
I'm not feeling like I'm making the progress that I want and I'm, and I'm not really happy right now. Um, so yeah, like sort of harsh reality of being a musician, you know, that just because you work hard doesn't mean you're going to get to the top, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody's going to be principal trombone in New York Philharmonic. And as somebody who had always worked hard and always sort of gotten to the next level and achieved what I wanted, that was really hard to realize that like, oh, I like, I might work as hard as I possibly can and, and not, not get what I want. Like I might not get a really great orchestra gig. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and, and that's the reality of being a musician, you know, like there's only, you know, a few principal trombone spots or even second trombone spots are amazing or even, you know, utility spots. And now it's shrinking. Like there are only a finite number of orchestral spots, you know, um, in the, in, in the country. And, um, and that was something that I was like, wow, this is, this is, this is going to be a really hard thing. And, and, um, I, I just, I, I was basically didn't, didn't believe that I could do it. I didn't trust myself. I just thought I'm not, I'm just not good enough, you know? Um, so I, that's when I moved to Texas and, uh, I knew I could do private lesson teaching down there. It's like, there's like this band machine that exists in Texas of private lessons. And so I I went to Texas. I had known some people that were doing that, went there and just started the private lesson teaching thing. Um, And I did that for um, four years before I went back and got my DMA. So I took a total of five years off between my master's and starting my DMA. Um, And so that's when I went to UT Austin, which is a fantastic place, like wonderful, wonderful place for me, for me to get my DMA, um, and, and be there. Um, so I definitely took a very circuitous route. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't, uh, go straight through like some people do. Um, but I don't regret any of it all. I I'm, I'm, you know, the time that I took teaching, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about not just how to teach, but how, people learn how students learn as musicians. And, and, and in, during that process, I learned a lot about how I learn and how I practice and how I work. Um, and it definitely made me a better musician along the way too. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't actually start my DMA until 2016 and then I finished it in 29, uh, 2018. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairly recently. I did. I just finished in 2018. Just, just fairly recently. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, yeah. So it definitely was not a straightforward path. <laughs> gotcha. So kind of between the private lesson time and now, um, I want to talk a little about your time subbing in orchestras and stuff. Um, and any, any auditions that you've taken that I know you're, are you, are you still currently the principal in the temple symphony? I, well, since I, I, I just moved to Murray, um, Kentucky here to teach at Murray State um, in August. And so um, I, I unfortunately had to give up that position. Um, the way their, their rehearsal schedule um, and concert season works, it, it wouldn't have been feasible for me to go back. And it's, um, 
it's a pretty long distance and I was going to have to, like, mm-hmm. if I were, if, if I were going to stay, I would have been having to take substantial chunks of time out of, out of teaching here at the university. So, um, I decided to, um, step away from that position, but I, so let's see, I think I started with Temple Symphony in 2016. Yeah, because I, I was I had just started my DMA, so I think that's when I started. So, I moved. So I moved to Texas in 2012, and this is where I did the majority of like my gigging and subbing. Um, so, when I when I started there, I or when I moved to Texas, I literally knew nobody, like no musicians, <laughs> which is really scary. That is um, scary. No kidding. Yeah, but the most number you know like the most important thing is just to start to like meet people and 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 to start to build your networking and the way that I started that is actually when I very first moved there for for about a year I was um an office manager at a music school that was like um teaching you know guitar and piano and voice um lessons and they had 15 or 20 teachers who were all local area musicians. And so, you know, I met this pianist and then through her, I met this saxophonist and then he had this band and he wanted me to play with this band. So, okay, now I'm playing with this band. That's like, like funk jam band, like, (laughs) like lettuce, um, type of, you know, um, a little bit of trombone shorty type of stuff. Um, and so then I'm, so then, you know, from there, I, I, it just, it, it all snowballs. Right. Um, and um, the other thing is, you know, um, that I did was I, I reached out and I looked for any opportunities that I could that I could find. And I just would talk with people like just having a conversation with people, just being around. Um, you never know what might pop up. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was doing the private lesson teaching teaching um, thing, there were you know, there was this giant network of private lesson teachers. Um, and at every school, I would just talk to people and say, you know, hey, I'm, you know, introduce myself and let them know who I was. And, um, and I ended up meeting some other trombone players, of course. And, um, for a while there was this community trombone choir that was happening, um, in the Austin area called Central Texas Civic Trombone Choir. C T C T C. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, oh. so I was like, yeah, sure. Let me do this. It's just, just for fun. You mostly like amateurish, um, players or maybe people who had, you know, maybe gone, um, gotten a, a music degree, but maybe we're like working for Dell computers or something like that. Um, but like to play and, you know, still wanted to play. Um, and so, you know, that, okay. So now great. Now I've got 15 or 20 like trombonists that I, I now know that I, that I can start to network with and, you know, that are all involved in music in a whole variety of ways. Um, and so again, it just, it just all started snowballing from there. Um, and, that got me, you know, then I started subbing in with this, um, like, uh, theater company. Um, and then, you know, you sub once and then they're like, oh, hey, for our next musical, you, can you do our whole thing? You know, and then from there, it's like, then you meet this other person that's do that does musicals at this other theater. And then, you know, I'm doing, um, a full on like summer theater program doing, you know, summer stock Austin theater program where we do, you know, a full out summer, summer program, um, for two months, you know, um, and, you know, doing three musicals that are, you know, are rotating and type that type of thing. And then, um, and as far as like temple symphony, I think that was a matter of just sort of always being ready 
you know, always for whatever opportunity comes up, you know, whether it's an orchestral audition or, you know, just being being ready to jump in to whatever somebody offers. And so that way you don't really want to have to say no. I mean, there's certain maybe, you know, here and there certain things like, hey, you know, play this five hour gig for, you know, um, beer in this dirty bar and, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, for five hours and you don't get any breaks. <laughs> like, maybe not that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but hey, maybe, maybe some people like to do that. But, you know, I, I also do, you know, value like the integrity of like legitimate gigs where you are paid appropriately and, you know, not taken advantage of. Um, but as, as, you know, as far as Temple Symphony goes, I was, I wasn't looking to to at that at that time I wasn't seeking out orchestral auditions. It just happened like, oh, this, you know, Temple Symphony is is uh, has an opening. Um and it's in 6 weeks. Okay, boom. Let me let me like ha- like see what their list is and and polish up those excerpts and be ready. Um and you know, and uh, so that was that was great that that opportunity opened up and I was ready and I could and I had put in all the work, you know, leading up to it that way when the time came, you know, I could take advantage of it. Um, but again, you know, being able to say yes to doing like musical gigs, being able to say yes to jumping in with a brass band, um, you know, and then, but, you know, again, with with respect that like you want to make sure that, you know, the gigs you're doing are, are respecting you as a musician. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I, I think now the other thing is like I am or when I lived in Austin, um, I was by far not the best trombonist in Austin. <laughs> I mean, there were so many trombonists around there and tons of people that could be on, you know, the the first call list or the sub list. Um, but I I know that I was called sometimes not because I was the best player, but because I would show up on time. I would be prepared. I knew all my music, I knew everything I needed to do. And I wasn't a weirdo, <laughs> like the weird factor. <laughs> Maybe I am a little bit of a weirdo, you know, we're all musicians. So we all have that weird factor a little bit, but you know, I'm, I'm not the one that like brings tuna fish that I'm eating in the middle of rehearsal. And people are like, Oh, what are you doing? Or, you know, <laughs> or like taps my, um, <laughs> not to me personally. <laughs> um, but, you know, so, so, uh, you know, I, or I'm not like tapping my foot crazy loud or counting rest out loud or just, you know, I'm, I'm just fitting in. I'm, I'm being, you know, collegial with everybody. I'm being nice. I'm being pleasant. Um, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot just to treat other people with respect and be, be nice to people and, um, you know, show, you know, care and empathy and, and be a decent human being, um, and oftentimes, if you can do th- all of those things and you're a decent trombone player, you don't need to be the best trombone player. As long as, you know, you are a, a person that other people like to be around or, you know, can can tolerate or hopefully more than tolerate, you know, hopefully they do like to be around you. Um, they're going <laughs> to ask you back, <laughs> you know, but you can be a great player. But if you are like a, a real, you know pain in the ass to other people, (laughs) like they're not going to invite you back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, as far as like gigging and subbing, I think, you know, that's probably one of the biggest things that, that allowed me to, you know, be successful as a, as a, you know, freelance player. Um, 
for the time that I was uh, doing that. Um, because for a good chunk of time, I, all I was doing was teaching private lessons and, and gigging. And I remember there were stretches where I would have, I wouldn't have a day off for literally three or four months because, you know, I was, I was teaching during the week and, you know, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, I was gigging. Um, so yeah, there were definitely stretches where, you know, I, I wouldn't have a day off. Now, was I playing in New York Philharmonic? No. Um, but was I happy and, and satisfied and, and enjoying, you know, my, my time as a, as a player? Yeah, for sure. So I think that whole feeling of, oh my God, I'm never going to be good enough to get like this great orchestra gig, which was so hard for me to learn initially kind of, I, I think I learned, you know, eventually that it's okay to not be at the top of the mountain as, you know, I think Doug Yo has an article about this, like, you know, there's only room for so many people at the top of the mountain, but there are great places along the way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I think, you know, for me, it's like, I, f I found a really satisfying way to be a musician. Um, and, um, you know, didn't, didn't ever sacrifice, you know, quality by any means. Um, you know, I still felt like I was always playing and performing at a really high level, you know? Um, so, but generally just be nice, <laughs> you know, just be a good person and, and that will help you so much along the way as far mm -hmm. as gigging. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of going a little further down this advice path, um, we talked a lot about this earlier in the season, especially with like Nathan Zagantz and with uh, Brian Wendell as well about audition preparation. So we don't have to go too deep into this, but clearly as someone that's had a lot of success with the auditions that you have taken uh, and then also enough experience with that, those extreme nerves, like with the National <laughs> Symphony audition, as someone that's experienced kind of both ends of the spectrum there, what sort of uh, general advice would you have for people that are trying to really dig their teeth into the orchestral world and try to dig into that, uh, or, uh, audition process as much as they can, as efficiently as they can. Yeah. Um, I, again, I think I, can, I, I would go back to, you know, practice smart. Sometimes just, you know, blocking yourself in a practice room for four or five hours is, is not the, the best way to, to go about it. <laughs> um, you know, there's so many resources out there now as far as, audition preparation and advice. I mean, um, you know, I think of something like the Alessi Music Studios website and the subscription to that. There's so, you know, much good information on that one, you know, subscription service or site. Um, and there are others like it as well. Um, there's, you know, Slide so school. much. Yeah, slide school, <laughs> absolutely. Way to represent. Yeah, Nathan and Brian, woo. Yeah, um, absolutely. Those those guys do an amazing job too. You know, there's a lot of content that's just out there on YouTube, um, as well. So, you know, knowing your resources, number one, to get as much, you know, advice and, and, and listen and from as many, you know, great players as you can, you don't have to wait for a masterclass, you know, for a great musician to come to you, you, you can seek, seek them out, you know? Um, and then also, you know, really knowing your repertoire, as far as, you know, the, the music itself, not just how to play it, but the, you know, where, who is this composer? Where does this music come from? Um, 
you know, where, where is this excerpt, you know, in the piece, of course, but like, you know, how does it fit within, within the, um, this particular section, you know, Saints on three, you know, that excerpt, who else are you playing with? Um, and, and just having that context. So that way you can play more appropriately, you know, for the style, um, because when you go to an audition, simply playing the notes and the rhythms correctly is the absolute baseline. Like that has to be there 100%, no questions asked. What then has to happen next is, you know, how you differentiate yourself is, you know, you show your musicianship, you show that you understand the context, you show that you understand the style um, and and you show that you have sensitivity and that you can be a versatile musician. Um, and then the other thing that I think is super, super important that has come up or I, I, I feel more and more strongly about, and this is perhaps again, why I was practicing hard and not smart <laughs> for a long time is that you fundamentally, you, you, you as a player need to be fundamentally sound. You will not be able to play Berlioz Hungarian March if your articulation in that particular, you know, light crisp style is not good. If you can't articulate cleanly, you know, at that, at that tempo, at, in that style, um, you're not going to be able to play the excerpt properly. Mm -hmm. So, so working on your fundamentals and improving those will reap you greater benefits in your excerpts and in everything else that you play. Um, rather than just like, let me just try doing it again. Let me just try doing it again. Like if I only, I could just like work this excerpt a little harder, you know, it, st take a step back and look at the fundamental aspects of your playing. What is holding you back from playing a certain excerpt really well? You know, if you're looking at Schumann three and this, you're going up to your high E flat up there and you really can't play a high E flat that great in any situation, <laughs> um, it's probably not going to happen in that particular excerpt, um, mm -hmm. with any consistency. So, so really looking at your fundamentals and saying, where are my weaknesses and being really honest about that and working on those and developing those, um, and being patient with the time that it takes to work on those. Because again, those, the benefits that you reap from that time will pay off, you know, multifold, <laughs> um, in, you know, in, when you're going to do your excerpts, I, it's like, you have to think about how you play versus what you play. You know, you need to know how to play what, or you need to know, you know, what it is you're playing notes and rhythms and, and style, but you also need to be able to execute that as a player. Um, and that really comes down to, you know, your, your fundamentals of your playing. So, um, you know, we could talk about audition preparation for hours, probably. <laughs> um, but I think those are kind of the, the biggest things for me, you know, just sort of the pillars of, of um, you know, being prepared for auditions. Yeah. Hmm. Sweet. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, before we go into anything else deep or big, we usually do this towards <laughs> the end, but I want to know now, uh, kind of what are some of your hobbies and activities that you enjoy outside of music? Oh, yes. Okay. So, um, let's see. Well, I think most people probably know at this point because, um, I, I say this a lot and I post about this a lot. Like I'm from Maine. I love Maine. Maine is awesome. <laughs> like it's a beautiful place. Um, I grew up 
and I was very, very lucky to, to grow up right on the ocean, basically. Um, so like, I love just being outdoors and I love being on the ocean and I love being near the ocean and I love going to the beach and, um, and hiking is fantastic. You know, I love, I love being outside and, and doing activities. Um, when I go home for the winter, um, this past winter, we had an awesome snowstorm. So I went like snowshoeing and cross country skiing. And, um, so those are all like real fun things that I like to do. Um, something when I, when I was living in Austin and, and I, um, I had a, a nice place in the space to do this. I did a lot of gardening, um, like kind of got pretty, pretty good into it. Like I had really big raised beds, like, like, let's see, five of them that were like four foot by eight foot raised beds. Like we're talking like, and I had like this whole like yeah. irrigation system for them <laughs> with, um, and I had rain barrels. I had five rain, 50 gallon rain barrels. And they were like all set up so that I could like get the water from the rain barrels to these garden beds. Like, and oh yeah, without like hauling buckets and everything. Oh yeah. It was, it was like, I had this whole system for it. It was, that was great. And especially when you live in Texas, water is super important <laughs> you have to water so much. Um, and then, and then with, with a gardening along with that, um, like I, um, when you have, you know, boxes of cucumbers, it's like, you can only eat so many cucumbers. So I made, you know, it's like, oh, okay, let's, let's start canning, you know? So, um, like I have a pressure canner and I would make pickles and tomato sauce and, um, you know, and soups I would, um, do, I would grow like a lot of greens, like, um, Swiss chard and kale and, um, make this like soup with all of them. And so, yeah, that's another thing that I like really enjoy, <laughs> um, cooking food, food that comes from the ground that I grow. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. And then I guess sort of along those lines too, uh, I have two cats and they're super fun. Um, one is a male, one is a female. Their names are Simone and Jackson. Uh, Simone is sort of named after Nina Simone, the singer. Um, mm -hmm. And Jackson is just, he just seems like a Jackson. Um, <laughs> but he's also, but he's, he's like, he's like a dog. So I have a, I have a dog for a cat. <laughs> um, because he, um, he follows me everywhere I go around the house. Like he doesn't leave me alone. Um, he loves to interrupt me when I'm doing my warm up. Um, like I always start with breathing and stretching and he like without fail is like always headbutting me when I'm doing that. Um, <laughs> and like meowing and like, please pay attention to me. I love you. And you can't like ignore a cat when he's like rolling on his back. Like, Hey, I'm so cute. Um, <laughs> So I have to like tell him, no, I'm practicing now. It's practice time. Um, and the, uh, and he also, um, the other reason I really feel like he's, he's actually a dog at heart is because he will eat anything. Like he is not picky. Um, okay. Do you guys like Brussels sprouts? Are you big on Brussels yes, sprouts? I love Brussels sprouts. I, I, I don't know if I have an opinion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, there are definitely some people that are like, oh, God, Brussels sprouts. Although they sort of have come into vogue, like, recently. It's like there was that whole, like, kale, like, um, trend where kale all of a sudden got really trendy and everybody well, wanted to have, like, kale, kale chips. chips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, so he really likes Brussels sprouts. Like, he will, if I leave them, if I cook some, I roast them in the oven, and I leave them on top of the oven to cool, he will, like, without fail, jump up on the stove and steal them off of the stove. <laughs> and, like, like be munching on them. Like, he'll steal, like, two or three, like, on the floor, like, oh, yeah. Avocado? I cannot leave an avocado. Like, if I slice an avocado um, and put it on a salad, 
and I and I turn to go like go rinse the knife like boom he's on the counter like literally like his face in the avocado like (laughs) eating avocado so yeah that's my cat (laughs) so if you ever need like if you drop food on the floor like he's there on top of it yeah so i don't need to i don't need to i don't need to clean my floor because he's like i have a i have a dog for a cat yeah (laughs) so yeah that's that's jackson (laughs) all right so Back in the trombone, I guess. Um, okay. <laughs> so I, I went to, I, I mentioned to you when we were first emailing that I went to ITF this year. And something that I've, I've been seeing in recent years, and especially this year at ITF, is this kind of initiative to really push female representation in the community. Um, and it kind of seemed like while I was there, you were one of the kind of big leading figures there, with along with like Ada, Ava Ordman and uh, Karen. I just I kind of want to know your perspective on kind of how things have evolved uh, on that front throughout your career so far, and then also kind of your experience as one of those leading roles and role models for younger female musicians on the scene. Yeah. So this year's ITF was very special with the initiative to have the women's choir and the mentor program. Um, that's something that I think is very very. Um, important to have. Um, and, and I think it was largely um, successful in a lot of ways. And I'm, and I'm glad that we did it. And, um, and it, I'm, I'm believe um, that, you know, there are plans for it to continue in the future in some sort of way, you know, it, um, and, you know, also there's, um, you know, the International Women's Brass Conference, you know, and, and some mentorship programs that go, that are going along with that. Um, so I think for me, I've, especially since COVID started and everybody went online um, and was doing a lot more, you know, activity um, in, in that realm, um, I just started to see a lot more um, speaking out um, and a lot more organizing um, as far as, you know, female musicians go, um, saying like, hey, you know, we, we have these things we want to do that we, we want to bring women together. We want to bring female musicians together. We want to bring underrepresented musicians together, you know, not just not just women. Um, and, you know, some some initiatives to to make that happen. Um, you know, there's a um, one uh, there's like the Bold as Brass podcast um, that Melissa Munoz does. Um, she's a trumpet player that I met initially at, at University of Texas at Austin. Um, and, um, you know, there are other initiatives like there's a, a chromatic brass collective now that's, you know, highlighting um, female trombonists of um, all, you know, different, you know, races. Um, and uh, so... So I've seen a lot of that really start to have greater um, prominence and greater voice. And I think that's all very important. Um, for me, I, I think that it kind of comes down to to this. Um, when I was growing up, I did not know any female trombonists. Um, I didn't know a lot about trombone in general, as we were saying. <laughs> but But I literally did not know of a single professional female trombone player. Um, and the first time I saw one was when it was the summer after my freshman year at Ithaca, we hosted the ITF that year, which was 
amazing because I got to be there the entire time and meet all the artists and and see all the concerts. And one concert that that stuck out um, was Megumi Kanda. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is an amazing, yeah. I mean, everybody, like, she, like, I can't say enough good things about her. We she's a wonderful, yeah, she's a wonderful, nice person. Just so, so pleasant and so nice and just such an incredible musician and player. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, black, white, blue, orange, male, female, it, you know, uh, wherever along the spectrum you are, like, she is just one of those human beings who is who is just exquisite as a as a musician um and so i saw her and but that really was meaningful to me because for the first time i saw a female trombone player that you know i could identify with and i could see myself in that person in that role and i thought that was really inspirational for me and 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 was really eye-opening because i I just literally had never seen another female trombone player. And I, and I, you know, if you don't see it, you know, if you don't see people doing the things that you want to do, people who, who look like you or who you, or who you not necessarily look like, but who you identify with in some way or another, um, it's harder to see yourself doing that particular thing that you want to do. And so that made me, you know, really, inspired and, and, and motivated. Um, and so I think one of the reasons why it's really important to have, you know, these initiatives that are, are highlighting, you know, female trombone players, um, or underrepresented, you know, groups, um, is, is for the visibility is so that young students see, I can do that someday because I see myself in that person. I can see myself as that person. I identify with that person in some way. And um, now this is all with the caveat that it must, like music is the number one thing that must be excellent. Like there's, we don't, you know, I I, I really feel that music has to come first before like who you are or what you look like or, you know, your gender or your age or what, all that stuff is important. Um, but, you know, whatever the represent, however the representation is happening, it must be by top, you know, musicians, because that's what we all are. We're, we're just like, I just want to be a good musician, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then seeing people who you can identify with and hearing people who you can identify with, you know, that then kind of gives you that spark or connection, you know, so that you can see it as a possibility for yourself. But, um, yeah, I think that's just that, um, ability for, for students, for young people to see it because, you know, I mean, just to be like 100% honest about it, like not as many girls start trombone. Like, it's just, it's just a thing. Now, mm-hmm. is that, is this, so now chicken before the egg, is this because girls aren't seeing a lot of female trombone players and they, they're not wanting to do it because they're not seeing that many females? Maybe that's probably a part of it. Or is it just because fifth grade girls or sixth grade girls are like, I want to play flute, you know? And again, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't, I don't want to like promote stereotypes, but it right now that is, there are more girls or there are fewer girls who start trombone than boys. So just, you know, if you look at the numbers, if they, if all things are equal, you know, if, you know, 
only only four girls start and you know twelve boys start, what's the likelihood that all four girls are going to be end up being professional players? You know where four boys might you know out of sixteen or out of twelve might you know so so. We have to kind of come at it from both ends, encourage, you know, more girls to start trombone. And that has to come from the visibility. So it's like this cycle, you know, it's like it has to come from both ends. Um, Will there ever be a day when, you know, it's perfectly equal? I don't know. Um, And is that a bad thing if, you know, in every single beginner class across the country, if we don't have 10 girls and 10 boys starting. I mean, I I want, you know, to have as many, I, I want it to be as, you know, whoever wants to play the instrument can play the instrument. And if, if you love it, go for it. You know, that's what we want. Um, so I, I just, you know, really do think that, you know, it does have to start with visibility though, you know, and, um, you know, so, so to get more girls to start, we need more, we need more, you know, great female players and to get more great female players we need more girls to start Mm -hmm. so you know it's definitely um both of those things go go hand in hand um so you know i but again for me i always come down to you know the the number one thing is you know we all have to be striving to be great musicians um but having that visibility you know i i experienced personally seeing megumi kanda was a really important moment for me and i know that for other people it's the same you know, they, they feel the same way. So it's, it's definitely important. And I'm glad that, you know, it's, it's happening and I'm glad to see that it's, it's, you know, there's such a positive, you know, reception to it also. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, going back just a little bit, final question. Uh, why would you ever play flute? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Let me tell you, I was awful at flute. I'm pretty sure I had to redo my my class flute midterm because I sucked so bad at it. Like, you're wasting half your air. Like, half of it doesn't even go in the instrument. That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, yeah. Sorry, flute players. (laughs) We have to be careful because I definitely know that there are many flute players, or I can think of several that are married to trombone players. So, you know, Uh just... Yeah, just uh, what we we love you, flute players. <laughs> for the record, not the pickles. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so, final enough. question: <laughs> What parting advice do you have for young musicians? Just like final words for. Oh. Them. Not final, but. <laughs> love, I you know okay I'm I'm gonna the 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 thing that I go back to and this is I think not just about being a musician but this is about being like a human being. Be excellent at what you do, right? Strive to do your best at the things that you care about and that matter to you. Um, don't settle for being mediocre. I'm very much, you know, I, that is that is very important to me that if you're going to do something that that you care about and that is meaningful, don't simply settle to be good enough or mediocre you know, go for it with your all and be great at it. Um, whether that's trombone, whether that's being a, you know, however you are as, however you, you live as a musician, you know, um, or just being, you know, be a, be a genuine person, be a, be a, be a, be a decent human being and treat Mm -hmm. other people well and the rest will fall into place, you know? 
if you, if you treat other people well and you care about other people, you know, they, the, the rest of life will fall into place really. Um, and if you, and if you put the care into the things that you care about, you'll see the results. That's, I guess, how I, how I try, you know, to think about, um, you know, being a teacher, being a, a musician, being, being, you know, relationships in life, you know, with the people that you care about. If just, just, just strive to, to do the best that you can do at those things that you care about, you know, um, and just be a good person. Yeah. That's great. Ooh, well, that's yeah. good. That's, that's very good. <laughs> you know what? Thank Deep you. Deep thoughts by Jack Handy. <laughs> We really appreciate you sharing all this with us. Uh, I, f- I feel like part part of our goal on this podcast is we we try to find people that might be really inspirational figures within the community or have really interesting stories to share, but don't really have as much of a voice as we think they should have. So, I mean, we appreciate you allowing us to talk to you today and try to give you an outlet to put your story out there because we we know people want to hear it we know we wanted to hear it yeah well awesome i i super appreciate you guys you guys taking the time yeah and and inviting me so (laughs) yeah this is this is fun and um definitely you know feel free to to stay in touch and and you know very curious to hear where you both end up sounds like you have big plans fingers crossed (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Nick Finzer and I overlapped at Eastman at the same time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He and I were there at the same time. I didn't, I don't, I don't think we were there for more than a year together, but I got to know him a little bit there. Yeah. So, um, he and Chris Van Hoff were in a band together. Chris Van Hoff, who's mm-hmm. uh, hosted ITF. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were in this, and, and for, like for, forgive me for, for I hope they forgive me for for bringing this together. But yeah, they they were in a band together. I don't remember the name of the band, but it was like a like a rock, like like again kind of trombone shorty like like um <laughs> type of like uh, maybe a little bit of salsa thrown in there type of band. I don't know. They, they were pretty they were pretty pretty rocking. So, <laughs> anyways, yeah. But yeah, please, yeah, just just definitely let me know like um where y'all end up and. Feel free to like stay in touch or reach out with whatever y'all you know you know want to um, know about or just to say hi or whatever. Absolutely, absolutely, awesome. All right, well, thank you. Uh, take care. Have a great night. Have a yeah. great month, week, everything. Thanks, you guys too. <laughs> yeah, like I said, feel free to stay in touch. Sounds good. Thank you. Okay, awesome. See ya. See ya. Thank you, Doctor Richardson. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> <laughs>